Section 9 of Sasha. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. www.blogordie.com. Sasha by Alexander Kuprin. Translated by Douglas Ashby. 9. How I Became an Actor. 9. The second rehearsal was the full-dress one. In this, by the way, I was struck for two new roles, that of an ancient Christian and that of Tigellius. I accepted them without a murmur. Our tragedian, Timofeyev Sumskoy, took part in this. He was a broad-shouldered man, about five feet high, no longer young, with red curly hair the whites of his eyes sticking out, and with a pockmarked face, a regular butcher, or rather an executioner. He had an enormous voice, and he acted in an old-fashioned, hectoring manner. He didn't know his lines at all. He was taking the part of Nero, and he had difficulty even reading it from his copy-book without the aid of his powerful spectacles. When people said to him, "'You ought to study your part just a little, Feodot Pamphilich,' he would reply in a low octavo, "'Oh, let it go. It'll do. I'll stand near the prompter. This isn't the first time. In any case, the public understands nothing. The public's a fool.' He was constantly having trouble with my name. He simply couldn't pronounce Tigellius, but called me either... Tigellini or Tynagil. Every time that he was corrected, he would bark out, Let it go, rot. I'm not going to fill my brain with rubbish. If he had a difficult phrase of several foreign words coming together, he would simply cross it out in pencil in his book and declare, I'm cutting that. However, everyone used to cut. From the soup of our play, there remained only the thickness out of the long roll of Tigellius there survived in the inn only one reply. Nero asks, Tigellius, in what state are the lions? And I answer on my knees, Divine Caesar, Rome has never seen such wild beasts. They are ravenous and ferocious. That was all. The opening night arrived. The theater was crammed. Outside, round the barriers, the crowd of the non-paying public was thick and black. I was nervous. My God, how horribly they all acted, just as if they had all acquiesced in Timofeyev's verdict. The public's a fool. Every word, every gesture, recalled something old-fashioned, which has become stale through the repetition of generations. These servants of art seem to me to have at their disposal altogether about two dozen intonations learned by heart and about three dozen gestures also learned by heart. As, for example, the one that Samoylenko fruitlessly tried to teach me, and I was wondering how it was. Through what moral fall had these people become so lost to all shame of their faces, of their bodies, of their movements? Timofeyev Swumskoy was magnificent. 
leaning over the right side of the throne, during which process his extended left leg protruded right into the middle of the stage, his fool's crown all awry, he was fixing the mobile whites of his eyes on the prompter's box and yelling in such a way that the little urchins behind the barrier shrieked with delight. Naturally, he didn't remember my name. He simply bawled at me like a Russian merchant at the Russian bath. Telyatin, bring along my lions and tigers, quick! I submissively swallowed my reply and went. Of course, the worst of the lot was Mark the Magnificent, Lara Larsky, because he was more shameless, careless, trivial, and self-confident than the others. Instead of pathos, he gave shrieks. Instead of tenderness, sickliness. Through the authoritative speeches of a Roman patrician, there peeped out the chief of a Russian fire brigade. But then Androsova was really beautiful. Everything about her was charming, her inspired face, delightful arms, her elastic musical voice, even her long wavy hair, which in the last scene she let loose over her shoulders. She acted just as simply, naturally, and beautifully as a bird sings. With real artistic delight, sometimes even with tears, I followed her through the small holes in the cloth background of the stage. But I did not foresee that a few minutes later she would touch me, not artistically, but in quite a different manner. In this play, I was so multi-figured that really the management might have added in their advertisement list the names of Petrov, Sidorov, Grigoriev, Ivanov, and Vysiliev, the names Dmitriev and Alexandrov. In the first act, I appeared first as an old man with a white robe and a hood on my head. Then I ran behind the scenes, threw off my things, and came on again as a centurion with armor and helmet, my feet naked. Then I disappeared again and crawled out as the ancient Christian. In the second act, I was a centurion and a slave. In the third act, two new slaves. In the fourth, a centurion and someone else's two new slaves. I was also a steward and a new slave. Then I was Tigelius, and finally a voiceless knight, who with the imperative gesture indicates to Marcia and Mark the way to the arena where they are going to be eaten by lions. Even the simpleton, Akimenko, tapped me on the shoulder and said amiably, Devil take it, you are a quick-change artist and no mistake. But I earned this praise at too great a cost. I could scarcely stand on my feet. The performance was over, the caretaker was putting out the lights. I was walking about the stage, waiting for the last actors to remove their makeup so that I might be able to lie down on my old threadbare sofa. I was also thinking of that morsel of fried liver which was hanging in my little corner between the property room and the general dressing room. For since the rats robbed me of a piece of bacon, I used to hang all eatables on a string. Suddenly, I heard a voice behind me. Good night, Vasiliev. I turned around. Androsova was standing with her hand stretched out. Her delightful face looked tired. I must say that in the whole troop she alone, not counting the insignificant ones, Luchovskoy and Nelyubov Oigina, used to shake hands with me. The others despised me. 
and even to this day I can recall the open, kindly, genuine way in which she shook hands like a woman and a comrade at the same time. I took her hand. She looked at me attentively and said, Listen, aren't you ill? You look bad. And she added in a lower tone, Perhaps you're in need of money, eh? May I lend it? Oh, no, thank you, I interrupted her with feeling, and suddenly yielding to the rush of emotion with which her acting had thrilled me, I exclaimed with fire, How beautiful you were tonight! Probably the compliment, by its sincerity, was a little unusual. She blushed with pleasure, lowered her eyes, and said, laughingly, I'm so glad that I gave you pleasure. I kissed her hand respectfully, but at that instant a woman's voice shouted, Androsova, where are you? Come along, we're waiting for you for supper. Good night, Vasiliev, she said simply and kindly. Then she took her hand, and just as she was leaving, murmured scarcely audibly, Ah, oh, you poor one, you poor one. No, I didn't feel at all poor at that moment, but it seemed to me that if, in saying goodbye, she had brushed my forehead with her lips, I should have died from happiness. 10. I wasn't long in taking the measure of the whole troop. I confess that even before my involuntary actor's career, I never had a high opinion of the provincial stage. But thanks to Ostrovsky, my idea of acting folk was that, though rough in externals, they were kindly and large in their hearts, happy-go-lucky people, but devoted to art in their way, and full of esprit de corps. But now I perceived that the stage was held quite simply by a band of shameless men and women. They were all heartless, treacherous, and envious of each other, without the slightest respect for beauty and creative power. In a word, base, insensitive souls. And on the top of it all, they were people of dumbfounding ignorance and deep indifference. Hysterical hypocrites, cold liars, with crocodile tears and theatrical sobs, stubbornly stunted slaves, always ready to crawl before their superiors and patrons. It was not all without point that Chekhov said once, There is only one person more hysterical than the actor. It is the constable. See how they both stand in front of a buffet on a bank holiday, make speeches and weep. But theatrical traditions were kept up immovably among us, Someone or other, before going on the stage, had the habit of making the sign of the cross. The story of this spread, and each of our principals, before his entrance, would not fail to go through the same performance, looking round sideways while he was doing it to see if anyone else was watching him or not. And if they were watching, he imagines them to be saying to themselves, "'How superstitious he is!' What an original creature! One of these prostitutes of art, with a goat's voice and fat thighs, once beat the tailor, 
and on another occasion the barber this also became an established tradition i have often watched lara larsky throwing himself about the stage with bloodshot eyes foaming at the mouth and shouting hoarsely kill me this tailor i will kill him this tailor and then after having struck the tailor and deep down in his soul expecting and fearing a return blow he would stretch his hands out backwards and roar hold me hold me or i shall become in reality a murderer but then how profoundly they would discuss the holy art and the theatre i remember one clear green july day our rehearsal had not commenced it was rather dark and cool on the stage of the principals lara larsky and his theatrical wife medvedevia had arrived before the others a few girls and schoolboys were sitting in the pit lara larsky walked backwards and forwards across the stage he seemed preoccupied apparently he was thinking out some profound new type suddenly his wife addressed him sasha please whistle that motive we heard in palace yesterday he stopped short looked her up and down from head to foot and said in the actor's velvety baritone glancing sideways at the pit whistle on the stage <laughs> he laughed the actor's bitter laugh and it's you who tell me to do this but don't you know that the stage is a temple an altar on which we lay our best thoughts and hopes and then suddenly to whistle <laughs> all the same to this very altar in the ladies dressing rooms the local cavalry officers and the rich idle landed proprietors used to come exactly as they would come to rooms in a maison de tolerance of course we weren't touchy about this sort of thing how often have i seen something like this inside the vineyard arbor a light would be burning a woman's laugh could be heard the click of spurs the tinkling of champagne glasses while the theatrical husband like a sentry on patrol would be walking backwards and forwards on the path near the entrance waiting in the darkness and wondering if he would or would not be invited and the waiter bringing in the fish au gratin on a highly lifted tray would jog against him with his elbow and say dryly step aside sir and when he is invited he will fuss and drink vodka and beer and vinegar while he tells dirty anecdotes about jewish life but all the same they used to talk hotly and proudly about art timofeyev sumskoy more than once lectured us on the lost classic gesture of exit the classic gesture is lost he would say gloomily this is how an actor would leave the stage in the past like this timofeyev would stretch himself out at full length and raise his right hand with his fist clenched except for the index finger which would stick out like a hook do you see and with slow enormous strides he would move to the door this is what's called the classical gesture of exit and now one just puts one's hand in one's trousers pockets and off one goes home that's about it my friends sometimes they took a fancy for innovations on their own account 
Lara Larsky would interpret his role of Gogol's Khlestakov like this. No, allow me. I interpret this scene with the town bailiff in this way. The town bailiff says that the room is rather dark, and I answer, yes, if you want to read something, for example, Maxim Gorky, it's impossible. It is dark, darkish, and that always gets around. It was good to listen sometimes to the old ones when they were a little drunk, for instance, Timofey of Sumskoy, talking with Goncharov. Yes, old pal, we don't get the same kind of actor nowadays. No, no, it isn't the same. It's a fact, my boy. It isn't the same. Do you remember Charsky or and Lyubovsky, eh? The old traditions are lost. It's the fault of Petersburg. It isn't the same. They don't respect any longer the sacredness of art. All the same, you and I were priests in the temple, but those others, eh, let's drink, old man. And do you remember Ivan Kozlovsky? Ah, let it be alone. Don't revive an old sore. Let's drink. What can they do, the people of today? Yes, what can they do? What can they do? And there, in the midst of this mixture of triviality, stupidity, swindling, mannerisms, bragging, ignorance, and depravity, Androsova alone truthfully served art. Androsova, clean, charming, beautiful, and talented. Now that I am older, I understand that she was no more conscious of this filth than the white, beautiful corolla of a flower is conscious that its roots are being fed by the slime of a marsh. 11. The plays were produced at express speed. Short dramas and comedies would be given one rehearsal. The death of Ivan the Terrible and The New World would be given two. Ismael, the composition of M. Bukharina, required three rehearsals, thanks only to the fact that about forty supers from the local commands, the garrison, the army transport, and the fire brigade took part in it. I remember particularly well the performance of the death of Ivan the Terrible because of a stupid and amusing incident. Timofeyev Sumskoy was taking the part of Ivan. In his long brocade robe and his pointed dog-skin hat, he looked like a moving obelisk. In order to give the terrible Tsar a little more ferocity, he kept protruding his lower jaw and dropping his thick underlip, rolling his eyes about, and bellowing as he had never bellowed before. Of course, he knew nothing about his part and read it in such verse that even the actors who were long inured to the fact that the public is a fool and understands nothing, were startled. But he particularly distinguished himself in the scene where Ivan, in an attack of repentance, kneels and confesses before the boyars, My mind is clouded, etc. And when he came to the words, Like a reeking cur, it goes without saying that his eyes were all the time on the prompter's box. In the hearing of the whole house he said, Like, and then stopped. Like a reeking cur, whispered the prompter. 
Like, roared Timofeyev. Like a cur, like, like a reeking cur. In the end, he succeeded in getting through the text, but he showed not the slightest confusion or shame. But as for me, I was standing near the throne at the time. I was seized with an irresistible attack of laughter. It always happens like this. When you know that you must not laugh, it will be exactly then that you will be mastered by this convulsive, wretched laughing. I realized quickly that the best thing to do was to hide at the back of the throne, and there laugh it out to my heart's content. I turned round and walked in a solemn, boyard-like manner, hardly able to keep my face straight. I got around the throne, and there I saw two of the actresses pressing against the back of it, shaken and choking with suppressed laughter. This was more than I could endure. I ran behind the scenes, fell on the stage sofa, my sofa, and began to roll on it. Samyulenko, who always jealously follows me, docked me five roubles for that. On the whole, this performance was rich in incidents. I forgot to say that we had an actor named Romanov, a tall, very handsome, representative young fellow for the loud and majestic secondary parts, but unfortunately he was so extremely short-sighted that he had to wear glasses of a quite special kind. Without his pince-nez, he would be everlastingly knocking against something on the stage, upsetting the columns, the vases, and the armchairs, getting entangled in the carpets, and falling down. He was already famous for the fact that in another town and in another strolling company, when acting the night in La Princesse Lointaine, he fell down and rolled in his tin armor, rattling like an enormous samovar into the footlights. In the death of Ivan the Terrible, Romanov surpassed himself. He broke into the house of Shwishki, where the plotters had gathered, with such impetuosity that he upset a long bench on which the boyards were all sitting. These boyards were delightful. They were all recruited from the young Karayim Jews who were employed at the local tobacco factory. I ushered them on to the stage. I am not tall, but the tallest of them was only up to my shoulder. One half of these illustrious boyards was dressed in Caucasian costumes with caftans, and the other half in long jackets, which had been hired from a local choir. On their youthful faces were fashioned black beards, their black eyes shone, their mouths were enthusiastically open, their movements awkward and shy. The audience neighed heartily at our solemn entrance. Owing to the fact that we produced a fresh play every day, our theater was rather well patronized. The officers and the landed proprietors came for the actresses. Apart from them, a box ticket was sent every day to Karatonyako. He himself came seldom, not more than twice during the whole season, but on each occasion he sent a hundred roubles. On the whole, the theater wasn't doing so badly, and if the young actors received no salary, it was thanks to the delicate calculations of Valerianov. 
The manager was like the coachman who used to dangle the wisp of hay in front of his hungry jade's muzzle to make him run faster. 12. On one occasion, I don't remember why, there was no performance. The weather was bad. At ten o'clock at night I was already on my sofa, listening in the dark to the drumming of the rain on the wooden roof. Suddenly I heard a rustling somewhere behind the scenes, then steps, then the crash of falling chairs. I lit a candle and went out to investigate the sounds, only to see the drunken Nelyubov Olgina, who was helplessly groping between the scenery and the wall of the theatre. On catching sight of me, he was not alarmed, but expressed a tranquil surprise. What the devil are you doing here? I explained to him in a few words. He thrust his hands into his pockets, nodded with his long nose, and swayed from the heels to the tips of his toes for some time. Then he suddenly lost his balance, but recovered it, moved a few steps forward, and said, "'And why not come with me?' "'We scarcely know each other.' "'Rubbish! Come along!' He took my arm, and we went off together. From that hour to the very end of my career as an actor, I shared with him his dark, tiny room, which he rented from the ex-police inspector of C. This notorious drunkard, the object of the whole troop's hypocritical scorn, showed himself to be a kind, quiet man, a true comrade, possessed of much inner delicacy and feeling. But he had in his heart a kind of sickly, incurable wound, the work of a woman. I could never get at the reality of his romance. When drunk, he would often drag out from his traveling basket the portrait of a woman, not very beautiful, but not ugly either, slightly squint eyes, with a turned-up, provoking little nose. She looked to me a provincial. He would either kiss this photograph or fling it on the floor, press it to his heart or spit on it, place it against the icons in the corner or pour candle grease over it. I could never make out which of them had thrown the other over or who the children were of whom he spoke. His, hers, or someone else's. Neither he nor I had any money. Long ago he had obtained from Valerianov a rather large sum to send her, and now he was in a condition of bond service, which simple honor prevented him from evading. Occasionally he would earn a few kopecks from the local signboard artist, but his source of increment was a great secret from the rest of the troop. How would Laura Larsky have tolerated such an insult to art? Our landlord, the retired police inspector, a fat, red-cheeked man with a mustache and a double chin, was a very benevolent person. Every morning and evening, after they had finished tea in his house, a newly filled samovar, a teapot, with the tea previously used, and as much black bread as we wished, was sent to us. We used to be quite satisfied. The retired police inspector would take a nap after dinner and then come out in his dressing gown with his pipe and sit on the steps. 
Before going to the theater, we would sit near him. The conversation was invariably the same. His misfortunes in the service, the injustice of his superiors, and the base intrigues of his enemies. He always asked us for advice as to how he was to write a letter to the principal newspapers so that his innocence might triumph, and the governor and the vice-governor with the present district inspector and that scoundrel, the inspector of the second section, who was the main cause of all his misfortunes, might be hounded from their posts. We would make different suggestions, but he would only sigh, frown, shake his head, and repeat, and eh, not that, not that, not that. There, if I could find a man with a pen, it's a pen that I must find. I wouldn't spare any money. And he, the rascal, had money. Once on entering his room, I found him sorting his securities. He was slightly confused, rose from his chair, and hid the papers behind him with the help of his open dressing gown. I am quite convinced that during his period of service there were many things to his credit. Acceptance of bribes, extortion, the misuse of power, and other deeds of the sort. At night, after the performance, Nelyubov and I would often wander about the gardens. In the quiet, lit-up gardens, there were everywhere little white tables on which the candles burned unwaveringly in their glass shades. Men and women, somehow or other, in a festive atmosphere, smiled and leaned toward each other significantly and coquettishly. The sand rustled under the light steps of women. What about landing a little fish? Sometimes say in his hoarse bass voice, looking sideways at me slyly. That sort of thing annoyed me at first. I always hated this eager, noble readiness of garden actors to paste themselves on to the dinners and lunches of strangers. These kind, moist, hungry dogs' eyes, these baritones at table with their unnaturally detached manners, their universal knowledge of gastronomy, their forced attentiveness, their habitual authoritative familiarity with the waiters, but afterwards, when I got to know Nelyubov better, I understood that he was only joking. This odd fellow was proud and extremely touchy in his way. But a funny and slightly discreditable incident happened which caught my friend and me in a culinary net. It happened like this. We were the last to leave the dressing room after the performance, when suddenly from somewhere behind the scenes there jumped out on the stage a certain Altschiller, a local Rothschild, a Jew still young but already fat, with very airy manners, a rosy-cheeked man of the sensual type, covered with rings and chains and trinkets. He threw himself at us. Good gracious, I've been running about for the last half hour. I'm dead beat. Tell me, for heaven's sake, if you have seen Volkova and Bogucharskaya. As a matter of fact, immediately after the performance, we had seen these actresses drive off with some dragoon officers, and we amiably imparted the news to Altschiller. He caught his head between his hands and threw himself about the stage. But this is shameful. I ordered the supper. No, this is really the limit. To give one's word, to promise, and... 
What do you call that gentleman? I ask you. We were silent. He made a few more contortions on the stage, then stopped, hesitated, scratched his head nervously, smacked his lips thoughtfully, and said suddenly in a decided manner, "'Gentlemen, may I ask you to have supper with me?' We refused, but he would take no refusal. He stuck to us like glue. He threw himself first at Nelyubov and then at me, shook our hands, looked appealingly into our eyes, and assured us with warmth that he was devoted to art. Nelyubov was the first to give way. "'Oh, the devil! Let's go! What about it?' Maecenas led us to the main platform and began bustling about. He chose the most conspicuous place, got us seated, and kept jumping up, running after the waiters, waving his arms, and, after drinking a glass of Krumel, pretended to be a desperate debauchee. His bowler hat was all on one side to give him an air of wickedness. "'Try a little cucumber. How does one put it in Russian?' Isn't it that, without a little cucumber, no festivity is possible? Try a little vodka. Do eat. Go ahead, I beg of you. And perhaps you'd like some boeuf à la Stroganoff? It's excellent at this place. Here, waiter! From a large piece of hot roast beef, I became drunk as though from wine. My eyes were closing. The veranda with its lights, the blue tobacco smoke and the fantastic gallop of talk kept flowing past me, and I could hear as in a dream, "'Please, eat a little more, gentlemen. Don't be on ceremony, really. I don't know what to do with myself. I am so devoted to art.'" Thirteen. But the denouement was near at hand. My fare of black bread and tea was undermining my health. I became irritable and often in order to keep myself in hand, I would run away from the rehearsal to some remote corner of the gardens. Besides, I had long ago exhausted my stock of underclothes. Samolenko continued to torment me. You know how it is sometimes at a boarding school, when a master, for no reason at all, suddenly gets his knife into some poor little wretch of a pupil, he will hate him for the pallor of his face, because his ears stick out, because he shrugs his shoulders unpleasantly. And this hate will last for years. This is exactly how Samoylenko behaved towards me. He had already managed to find me fifteen rubles altogether, and during rehearsals he would speak to me as though he were the head of a prison addressing a convict. Sometimes, as I listened to his insolent remarks, I would lower my eyelids and would then see fiery circles in front of my eyes. As for Valerianov, he had stopped speaking to me at all, and when we met he would bolt like an ostrich. I had been with him a month and a half already and had received exactly one rouble. One morning I woke up with a headache with a metallic taste in my mouth, and in my soul a black, heavy, unreasoned anger. In this frame of mind I went to the rehearsal. I don't remember what we were acting, but I remember well that there was a thick, rolled-up copy-book in my hand. I knew my part, as usual, perfectly, 
it contained the words, I have deserved this. And when the play got to this passage, I said, I have deserved this. But Samoylenko ran up to me and bawled out, Who speaks Russian like that? Whoever speaks like this, I have deserved this. One says, I have deserved this. Mediocrity. Growing white, I stretched the copybook out to him with these words. Kindly look at the text, he shouted out in a guttural voice. To hell with your text. I myself am your text. If you don't want to keep your job here, you may go to the devil. I quickly raised my eyes to his. Suddenly he understood everything became as pale as I was, and moved back quickly two steps, but it was already too late. With the heavy, rolled copybook, I struck him heavily and loudly on the left cheek and on the right, and then again on the left, and then on the right again and again and again. He made no resistance, did not even duck, did not even try to run away, but at each blow only switched his head to left and right, like a clown who plays at being surprised. Finally, I flung the copybook in his face and left the stage for the gardens. Nobody stopped me. And then the miracle happened. The first person that I saw in the garden was a little messenger boy from the local branch of the Volga Kama Bank. He was asking for Leontovich and handed me a notification of five hundred roubles that were sitting for me at the bank. An hour later, Nelyubov and I were already in the gardens, ordering a gigantic lunch, and two hours later the whole troop was drinking my health in champagne and congratulating me. On my honor, it wasn't I, but Nelyubov, who had spread the news that I had come in for 60,000 roubles. I didn't contradict it. A little later, Valyanov swore to me that business was going to the dogs, and I made him a present of a 100 roubles. At five o'clock that evening, I was at the station. In my pocket, apart from my ticket to Moscow, I had only 70 roubles, but I felt like an emperor, when after the second bell I was getting into my compartment, Samoylenko, who up to now had kept his distance, came up to me. Forgive, I was hot-headed, he said theatrically. I pressed his outstretched hand and answered amiably, Forgive, I too was hot-headed. They gave me a farewell cheer. I exchanged the last kindly glance with Nelyubov. The train started, and everything receded, never to return. And when the last of the little blue huts of the outskirts began to disappear, and the mournful yellow burnt-out step stretched itself endlessly, a strange sadness tugged at my heart, as if there, in that scene of my misfortunes, sufferings, hunger, and humiliations, had remained forever a particle of my soul. End of section 9